the Modernist Society podcast, otherwise known as the Modcast. I'm Eric Ottens in Chicago. I'm Jason Mojica in New York. Great. And this episode, we are going to talk to Tim Kinsella and Jenny Pauls from their new band, Good Fuck. Yeah, Good Fuck has been around for about a year now, I believe. And uh, I have to say that they're probably my current favorite band. Um, after I saw them for the first time, I kind of described them to friends as being yellow meets front 242. And I'm not sure if that's a good or even fair description. I encourage people to listen and decide for themselves. But uh, that was my first reaction. I got distracted because I immediately, when you said yellow, I wanted you to keep saying magic orchestra, but you actually mean yellow, which is a different band. So that's fun. <laughs> true, true. I could, sure, there's a bit of yellow magic orchestra in there. Uh... <laughs> I want to throw in because sure. one of the first ones I heard too was Prince for sure, which is maybe where I even got that that Yellow Magic Orchestra bit. Um, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I was very surprised. I think I even messaged you about this when I heard the first Prince record for you that I'd, I'd never really listened to because it just seemed too almost like old school kind of soul and not what I was looking for in Prince. And I went back and listened to it and I was like, oh my God, this is like, it clearly sounds a lot like Yellow Magic Orchestra, which for as fascinated as I am by Prince and all the things he's done, the fact that he was like, what's a cooler word for kind of stealing from Yellow Magic Orchestra in like 1979 was just inspired by thank you mind-boggling that was super cool so not that related to uh today's guests maybe a little bit wait sorry you're saying you hear a bit of Prince influence in uh, that first good fuck record or 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 so but you really mean Yellow Magic Orchestra influencing Prince influencing Tim and Jenny that's that's mm, I didn't connect the three, I guess, as separate thought tangents. <laughs> for sh- I was surprised when I heard Prince that I could hear YMO and I'm just calling that and listeners can keep up or not in there. And then I that's just related to the fact that I could hear some Prince in Good Fuck as well. Yeah, I've, I've known Tim since I was 16 years old and uh, he's done so many things. He's been in tons of bands and Captain Jazz. Uh, I'm sorry, Captain Jazz, Joan of Arc. Friend. Thank you. I was upset that you said Captain. <laughs> yes. Captain okay, please continue. <laughs> Captain Jazz, Joan of Arc, Friend Enemy, Owls. He's uh, written a slew of novels. The latest uh, called Sunshine on an Open Tomb just came out from Featherproof Press. Um, he's directed a feature film. He's re- recently started acting in them. Um, but, you know, so I've known him a long time and... I don't know that I've ever said this to him, and I, but he's truly been one of, I've always admired him and his work and his work ethic. And yeah, I've always, I'll just say I've, I've always found him and his work uh, to be downright inspirational. Um, and so, and, and when I say that, I just mean it's inspired me to uh, try to maintain that same forward motion um, in creative fields. You know, just there's always something new. There's always the next thing. There's not a lot of, you know, if you look at all the work he's done over the past 20 something years, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of Tim patting himself on the back for the work that he's done. He's always on to a new and interesting endeavor. And, and again, I think in culminating in this collaboration with Jenny Pulse, um, it, like I said, when I went to see them, it was just not what I was expecting. I don't know what I was expecting, but uh, 
yeah, I was pretty energized by it. So, so what's funny to me, I guess, is I can technically say I've maybe known him about as long as you were saying, but I know that you guys are actually like friends and have kept in touch and like worked on things together. And for me, that's, that's just not the case. So I wanted to quickly summarize my lifetime experience with, with Tim Kinsella, which is about one per decade, if you kind of average them out. <laughs> uh, so one, to give a little like context or background, uh, in the early 90s, I played in a ska band called Greenhouse. And once in a while, we would play with like Psycho Kato, Cap and Jazz, bands like that. So I knew of Tim and we had met, but you know, like, that's the context for anecdote number one, which is a few years after that, I was going to DePaul University and Tim must have been as well because I was walking down Fullerton Avenue one way, he was coming the other way and from like a block away, he kind of looked at me and started yelling, why do I know you? <laughs> which I thought was really a funny way to handle uh, a social interaction. That's anecdote number one. Number two, um, I went to see a show at a VFW hall probably years before that. So really early 90s. For sure, the band Gage was on the bill, Captain Jazz, and the other ones are getting real hazy. But I was sitting at a table, and you can always kind of clock a mom. You can be like, oh, this is the mom of one of the someone <laughs> in one of the bands. And she was like super nice, and she was like, that's my boy. He's going to sing in one of the bands tonight. And I was like, yeah, I know. That's, that's part of why I'm here. So... You know, she was super nice. And so I think it's funny that technically I have met his mom. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> and then the third one is uh, much later, like late 90s or early 2000s. I was at Rainbow. And it's safe to say we were at Rainbow because if I was at Rainbow, clearly you dragged me there. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, Tim was bartending and he had a suicidal tendencies cap on. So I walk up to the bar and he goes, hey, what can I get you? And I just couldn't help myself. I was like, all I want is a Pepsi. Just one Pepsi. <laughs> I was so pleased with myself. And he goes, uh, fair enough. The first person to do that every day gets a free drink. So what can I get you? And uh, thank you, Tim. I appreciate the drink. <laughs> I, I, I do actually remember that. Yeah. Wow, awesome. True story. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Just wanna, do you want to try some of the promotional things sure <clears throat> hey everybody this is eric coming at you so please remember to smash that like button and subscribe <laughs> yes do please like what where you don't know about smashing like <laughs> i don't i'm i'm not as savvy with the online marketing as you i guess uh-huh cool is <laughs> that <laughs> Uh, yeah, so do subscribe to the Modernist Society. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Dot com. <laughs> follow us on Twitter. It is twitter.com, actually. Follow us on twitter.com. We are the underscore modernist. Oh, yeah. How about this? Instead of having to deal with our bad uh, yellow magic orchestra meets prints in a dark alley descriptions, uh, let's just let good fuck provide our segue into the interview. And... Uh, We'll drop in a few bits of songs here and there as we go. The universe has conspired to challenge you to allow it to be.
Um, yeah, so I'm a bit hungover from going to see the Good Fuck show last night. Yeah. Yeah. We're a bit hungover from having played the Good Fuck show. <laughs> Is that what you do every night on tour? I don't mean what you performed last night. I just mean getting hungover. Oh. Getting drunk. Let's talk about the substances. Yeah. 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 We try to... Um, it definitely like there's nights where there's more friends around and so it's fun and you just end up having more drinks. Then there's nights where there's no friends around and it's boring so you end up having more drinks. But I don't think, I think we both drink a lot less than we used to, certainly than like when we first got together. And we were like, uh, we met and immediately we were like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf or something? <laughs> cooling out since yeah, then. Yeah, right. But how you're like, oh, five drinks isn't a lot. And I'm like, I would agree with that. And then now it's just This is just what I was saying. I was like, I, I only had five <laughs> drinks last night. That was Right, mm-hmm. because at some point throughout our lives, we're like, oh, five drinks wasn't a lot. And then even the other night we had... We were get we went out for drinks with Adam, our friend Cube that we played a few shows with, and then we were like, "Should we have one more?" And it was that one more that just totally pushed us over to an extreme hangover that like I don't know ruined the rest of our day or like yeah. prevented us it's, from getting things done that we wanted to get done. It's tough just being a duo on tour because there's not much of a margin of error. Like our setup has so many small parts um and I mean, like we, technically like technically, just electronic yeah just like a lot, a lot of small pieces like uh-huh. there's one way to look at our setup as like oh there's one big table on stage but then also on that table are a lot of small parts that need to be connected to each other and packed and unpacked and um and then you know one of us does sells t-shirts and records while the other one does that and then we load, then we like have to drive to a hotel. So it's, it's like, if we're thrown off in the morning because we're hungover, then it's like, uh, yeah, there's no, I'm used to like bigger groups of people where there's someone could absorb the, someone else's margin of error, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. What about hangover cures? Oh, I would like to know of a good one. I don't know if we... <laughs> You used to, when we first met, you would just drink that like baby diarrhea medicine every day. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, Pedialyte. Oh right, right. Because yeah, of the yeah, it actually <laughs> does the trick. She would just like sip on it each day, like that was totally normal for yeah. an adult. Yeah, they have those Pedialyte popsicles. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was like more of like. I was on it during my druggy phase where I was like, you can go all night. You just, as long as you're hydrated, you can do all the drugs you want. So yeah, Pedialyte, that might be it. But then, right. Yeah, we're much more chill than we both have been at other times. Yeah. What is the origin story of Good Fuck? How How did you, the artistic unit, get together? Well, I made a record, still hasn't come out, it's been mixed, maybe it never got mastered, I don't remember. Um, I have this like backlog of records that's become a real sore point with the label I was working with for a long time. Um, Wait, what do you mean you had a backlog of records? 
Just records that got finished and never released. Oh. Um, <laughs> and they weren't just sort of like, it's not like I'm like just throwing out any trash. Like these were things I like worked on for a long time and uh, put a lot of thought and effort into and, you know, threw 98% of it away and this 2% emerged and was a record and then it just never came out for various administrative reasons like the label would pay for studio time and recording and and everything and then just sit on it so I have a couple of those that have been so in 2000 November 2016 right after the election I made I made a record uh, one record in 2000 late 2001 called friend enemy um, and it was sort of like the coping with the weird shock of 9-11 that everyone was going through by like hiding out in a studio with a bunch of friends. So right after Trump's election, uh, I did the same thing. And Jenny ended up singing on that. Um, they were sort of all duets. It, you know, it's a... It's like a real duality record called Friend Enemy and everything. So, so she was the second voice on that. And that was, we like knew each other a little bit, but um, yeah, I was looking for like the right woman singer in Chicago to do the duets with. So I was like checking out everyone's that I was like aware of SoundCloud pages and stuff. And the first song of hers I put on had this Cassavetes quote that I immediately recognized as like a sample. So Which like, quote is that, Jenny? Oh, I think, um, well, it's it would probably be from opening night, uh, this part where he's like, you want to get to me? You don't get to me. There's no way for you to get to me. And it's like yeah. that chopped up because I would watch that movie like once a week for, <laughs> you know, handful of months. I was so obsessed with it when I first saw it. That was the best movie kind of still is but yeah so when I heard yeah. that then I was like oh okay she should be the singer on this <laughs> right. and then we did one show with that band where we sort of just sang it as a karaoke thing oh yeah I think we even sang like we didn't even did we even take out the vocals from right, the we might have just I think played we the just record even and sang, sang over like our own vocals which <laughs> Made it particularly and then we weird. had a we had one synthesizer that like during instrumental moments we would just sort of both yeah. do like one synth solo over it. I remember you know. people because I think that was the show that we was that with um, Ty Braxton. Yeah, yeah, Ty Braxton, and so it was like kind of a serious audience. And then I remember looking up and I couldn't tell if people were just like in shock and like horrified, delighted. It's hard to know if they were laughing with us or at us. Because <laughs> yeah. we just did like a karaoke, like put the lyrics, that's where like the whole karaoke element of our... That's right. We, you know. I think we also tried to film our, like do a live stream of ourselves with our yeah. cell phone. So it was like also projected. Yeah. That was weird, but I, that must have been the birth of it because we were yeah. afterward. We were like, "That was so insane." So after that, you're like, "We should do that 
all the time. All the time. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> let's take this on the road. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's take this freak show on the road. <laughs> yeah, I think at that point, then we were like, want to hang out 24 hours a day from now on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. I think I was just like, I live here now. And then, yeah. and then our band began. <laughs> yeah. Where did you live before that? Uh, I lived in an apartment in Pilsen by myself. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah, so I was in Chicago, um, but that's just to say I was living alone, and then my ceiling collapsed because of rain, and living in Pilsen is just like, I feel like buildings are just falling apart a lot quicker than in other places, and and yeah, I just wouldn't get repaired, so I was like, I guess I can't live here anymore because I don't have a roof, so... <laughs> <laughs> We wouldn't even be together if there was better. Yeah, if there was <laughs> construction laws, zoning laws in Pilsen. Yeah, in Pilsen. <laughs> yeah, very well could be true. We lived in Pilsen ages ago, like late '90s. I'm going to say when it was supposed to still be up and coming, and I was like, okay, 20 years later, it made it. But uh, at the time, no, there was not a lot going on down there. Yeah, it's still like just always bubbling as like. But yeah, it's it's been a long bubbling of like, oh, it's gonna get expensive over here. But I guess there mm-hmm. are like Taoya and stuff now. It's yeah, like, I think it is expensive yeah. now in comparison because yeah, there was a moment with I got grandfathered into one of those apartments where it's like friend of a friend, so the rent is like you know, $600 or something for a two-bedroom. And even then, I was like, this is expensive, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which it's not. But, uh, yeah, now I think, you know, the rent is just going up because for whatever reason, people want to pay to live in a... To live in a... Wow, that's dump. a long way from... Uh, yeah, the last time I lived there, I remember I was unemployed and I had basically applied for every job that I could conceivably apply for so decided that I was entitled to fuck off so I uh, took I had a patonk set that my sister had given me as what's, a gift what's patonk? Yeah. It's, it's, I uh, remember this yeah, yeah what it's, is it's that? like bocce ball oh. but it's the French version uh-huh. and so I went over to like the baseball diamond around my house just I had like just shorts on and sneakers I was shirtless and I was just practicing patonk and these two like gangster guys walk up and they're like, "Yo, what's that game you're playing?" I'm like, "It's called Patonk." And they're like, "Is that like bocce ball?" And I'm like, "It's exactly like bocce ball." And they're like, "Oh, I used to play bocce ball all the time in the joint." I'm like, "You want to play?" And so they're like, "So they played and they kicked my ass, like over and over again." And after each game, they're like, "You got something else you got to do?" I'm like, "Nope." And, and, <laughs> and so I played like bocce ball with these guys for like four hours, and they were incredible. And then the guy invited me to this little hole-in-the-wall bar that I didn't even know was a bar. It was I'd been walking past it every day since right. I lived there. And we went in and had, like, uh, fifty pitchers of old style. Like, each of right, us right. had our own pitcher of old right. style. And we sat there, and he's like, As so... one does after Patank. Yeah, he's like, so what do you do? You drive a forklift or something? I'm like, no, I'm a graphic designer. <laughs> and it's like, I had to basically explain that and... And then he recommended that I have some shorties. And, and then so 20 years later, I've had one shorty. 
Was yeah, it Shorty? Shorty. Uh, my, my son, a child. Oh, 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 oh. yeah, right. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He said, he said that it would really chill me out. So I took that advice. Oh. Yeah. Did it? <laughs> yeah, there's craft cocktails over there now. <laughs> Different world. <laughs> But yeah, talk to me about touring. And you are taking a very DIY approach to putting out records, to booking tours. Uh, is that an active decision on your part, or is that born of necessity? Like, is it deeply oh, philosophical, both. or is no. it, is it mm-hmm. Ian Mackay style? Yeah, I mean, I think we try to psych ourselves up to think that we're so punk and being like, you know what, we can do it ourselves. It's like we don't need anybody but then when we do it it is like really hard because it's not our specialty it's not our specialty to market to people it's not our specialty to learn how facebook works which like neither one of us is on and it's uh and then like getting around our name you know and being like oh you can't even like use you can't like use promotional you can't even pay for promotions on like instagram because like some child might be offended if they see it somehow or just anybody um and so it's like weird surprises like that we're like oh this is so much harder to just get anybody to know about our band and so at first i thought i think we thought it would be an empowering thing and in a way it has been because it's fun to like say press your own record and like pack it and do all of that and do it in a way that we want to but everything else has been i don't know what do you think i mean yeah like you said like the the there's a reason people hire specialists for things i mean just this morning eating breakfast and coming over here we were like well if we wanted a deck we wouldn't try to build our own deck we would like hire someone who knows how to build a deck and they would build it according to our wishes. Yeah. And like maybe we'd help partner. them like paint it. Or yeah. Something. And we have a partner on it, <laughs> but yeah, it's like, um, it was, so it was definitely born out of necessity in that no one in the music industry was interested in partnering with us. Well, and we decisively parted ways, but all at once. So it was like, Maybe we shouldn't have done it in that way, but it's also, uh, I don't know, when the label wasn't working out for us that we were with or the manager that it just didn't seem like the right fit and there was nothing wrong with either except the fact that they didn't seem to understand what we were doing. So we're like, well, what is the purpose of us working together if you can't even articulate what we do well? Yeah, we did have a record label and a manager and we, like, we actively parted ways with both of them, but it wasn't because we were like, we can do this ourselves better. We were like, we got to find people who are actually interested in what we're doing instead of just blowing us off all the time. Yeah, well, going back to your deck analogy, though, you're ta- when you're talking about 
going on tour and playing shows and making mm-hmm. records and releasing music, those skills seem within your no. areas of expertise. I mean, no, they're not I far mean, from... No, they aren't far. <laughs> not, right, they're closer than building Here's a hammer and nails and go build a deck. It's, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like... <laughs> I mean, you've seen it done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. I've, I've <laughs> seen it done. Tim has been doing, I mean, for example, like this tour they were on, Tim booked all of it and with a lot of ease, but it's not, of course, the same as having a booker, you know, where you're like, have someone negotiating prices for you and and just doing all this advancing and and um, maybe like helping with promotion in each place mm. where... Um, I don't know. I think Tim's done, done a great job at doing it, but does he want to do it? <laughs> Hard to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I did a really good job of getting us in the right cities on the right days. Something like last night, like I don't know if you noticed that like... The, yeah, last night there was a show at Come On Everybody in... I don't even know what the neighborhood is called. Bed-Stuy. Clinton, yeah. Bed-Stuy, Clinton Hill. Yeah, um, and yeah. Um, yeah, like on their like monthly schedule they had like our picture really big at the top yeah, and on their like little handout flyer for the calendar for the whole month our picture was on the cover when they made like a like video advertisements for the whole month they included our songs so like the club did a really great proactive job of publicizing the show and it was still like 22 people paid. <laughs> and it's like, damn, this is New York. This is like on tours that aren't going well, you're supposed to be like, well, at least we'll get to New York and that show will be big and I'll pay for the week. <laughs> but but then it was like, at the end of the night, they're like, here's $46, split it between the four bands. It's like, yeah. whoa. Like, <laughs> right. Well, yeah. so, the, so the question I have is what has changed? And I know you mm-hmm. um, might want to blame yourself <laughs> I mean in terms of you know in terms of like oh no one likes me anymore or my work but I also think that industry-wide there are lots of people I know who have you know like yourself are godlike figures to some and I don't think that's an overstatement but then can't manage to get people to come to a show or yeah. buy records or, or yeah so so what, what I will say a lot of like the dozens of rejections we got from labels and booking agents after parting ways with the people we were originally working with a lot of people just ignored us but then a lot of the people we talked to were like wow I'm really into this I got so much respect for what you guys are doing no idea how to sell it good luck you know so it was like a lot of very respectful rejections which is kind of like a depressing spot to be in like the best you could say is like "Eh, we're getting very respectful rejections yeah and it continues to be that right people are like man don't give up just keep doing what you're doing it's so important and we're like, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't feel like an asshole. Like, yeah. Yeah. Whatever. It's, you know, it's mostly like, well, it's two things. It's like in a practical sense, it's unsustainable as a business model. And then like also a practical sense, but more like emotional, psychological ego. It's just kind of like it's hard to muster the will to do it when there's like it's one thing to 
like get out there and play shows when there's an audience waiting. And I get that if you build it, they will come thing. But it's also a little embarrassing to be like, hey, we're here, and, everyone, and just be met with resounding indifference. It's like, oh, okay, cool, well, we're still here. Going back to that idea that someone really likes what you're doing and respects it and has no idea how to sell it, that's confusing to me, I suppose, because I would say that, I mean, for those listening, of course, you can go to any of the uh, music playing devices you use and, and listen to the two good fuck albums. And I don't think it's so wildly avant-garde. I think it's actually, I mean, it's... Yeah. pretty accessible I would, I would argue even more accessible than many of the records that you've put out in the past 20 yeah, years yeah I know totally <laughs> that's what I that's true I yeah. find them to be yeah unlistenable in some ways but old Joan of Arc records oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah totally like, I'm I mean, sorry did you say unlistenable <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah I think I yeah. tried listening to even the first record and then I fell asleep or something. Well, that's not on this. But that's, that's different like, that's yeah. different that's a different I mean also people listen to no one sits down and like listens to a record beginning to end anymore. And that's what you were, we had this funny idea of like, that she was gonna listen to it on headphones and we like, were filming just her face and she like listened to the first record beginning yeah. to end. That was gonna, that was like a video. But then she just kinda, idea. yeah, we were gonna like put it on our website, like Jenny hears Joan of Arc for the first time. Yeah, right, but the then the video cut out. But that, so we were like, well, then, oh, do we yeah, do it again? And she sort and of like, like fell asleep on our frame. And, I remember being in a, a used CD store in Milwaukee, and uh, they were playing the first Joan of Arc record, and I remember the two employees trying to figure out if the CD was scratched. Like, it was, right. if it was, it was like is this broken? Like, no, I think it's supposed to sound like this. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, I mean, not to toot my own horn with that first record, but I will say when I got Led Zeppelin four as like a 12-year-old and put it on, you know, that like weird time signature right at the beginning. I was like, oh shit, my record's warped. <laughs> so there's some great records that the listener might immediately be like, oh, it's broken. Yeah. I had some of those. Um, <clears throat> when I was a kid, I just got a bunch of 45s from my parents and my aunt and their friend. And a Steppenwolf Magic Carpet Ride, like it's all like distorted and back mass at the beginning. Yeah. So like I wouldn't play it past the first like five or 10 seconds because I thought it was broken and scary. And one day my parents were like, no, just... Keep it, keep it yeah. rolling. So, Push on, yeah. yeah. It's a fun experience. When I was in eighth grade, um, the, you know the Megadeth record, Peace Sells But Who's Buying? Sure. Sure has do. that song, The Conjuring. No. And, uh, I don't remember it that well. The yeah. Conjuring, and it starts with like, his voice is pitch shifted down with his like Cobra um, Commander yeah, snarl, yeah, yeah, and he's yeah, like, yeah. this is The Conjuring, or something. <laughs> and I would always fast forward that song, because... You know, this is like 1987, 88. And I was like afraid that it was like really going to conjure demons if I listened to it. <laughs> I would like listen to that record over and over, but always fast forward that song. I remember being um, shocked and semi horrified when the second Danzig CD inner booklet folded out into an upside down cross, right. which is so ridiculously sort of brilliant and sort of dumb to this day. I, I marvel that. Oh, I, I, that's what. Yeah, I remember got that very well because I was 
a bunch of us had all gone to the record store on day one to buy it and then all mm-hmm. went to my friend's house to listen to it and we were all you know catholic school kids and we were mm-hmm. i was deeply scandalized by it and my, <laughs> yeah. i remember my friend pat laboyko and i like reading the lyrics to snakes of christ being like i don't know man <laughs> <laughs> too much <laughs> we saw a suv on the highway in maine yesterday or Providence, Rhode Island, I guess. and it had a Danzig skull, like the uh, what do you call those giant stickers yeah. that go on cars? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, decal. Decal. Maybe? decal. It had like yeah. a decal the size of the back window, a Danzig skull so. with Calvin <laughs> pissing on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, rather than yeah. asking. Who are your influences? Just talk to me about, and especially you, Jenny, because I, I, I'm less familiar with your whole life story yeah. than Tim, who I met when I was 16 while we were standing in line to meet Henry Rollins. Um, so oh, yes. <laughs> you know that record store up at my mom's house, Rolling Stone? Oh, yeah, I know. That's, there, yeah. I've, I've known about that record store for a long time. I used to go... Um, Oh, Oh, beekeeping over there. Yeah, I used to beekeep in the back of this uh, like mental institution. There's a (laughs) (laughs) there's a I know that forest reserve in the back of a mental institution at like you know what is it? Um, I don't know. That would be like it's like by that Irving Park Mall kind of the hip the hip yeah the hip Harlem Irving Plaza Yeah. yeah. Just right there. Um, Sorry, explain the beekeeping in a mental institution. Sorry. Yeah, Sorry, I, there is a, a, a handful a of years. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I probably should have been at the time, but no, I I just was a beekeeper for maybe three, four years. And um, yeah, and I kept bees out at this uh, space in the back of a mental home, but then it just kind of went super south. Like I was used to doing it in backyards and like more controlled <laughs> environments. <laughs> and then once I realized that there's a lot more spiders and a lot more mice and a lot more other living creatures in this field, it was like more than I could handle. And, um, and it like became quickly overgrown. Like things just grew very fast out there, and so <laughs> that kind of ended my beekeeping career because it was just so intense uh, for me. But well, when you said it went south, <laughs> I thought you were going to say that they turned on you. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, swarm of bees. <laughs> swarm of bees. Yeah. No, they just like, and it was a very cold year, so a lot of them. I had like five hives, and they all just ended up freezing. Do you have that picture you can show them of uh, when you used to make a beard of bees? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I would. (laughs) Oh, wait, sorry. Now I remember what I wanted to ask, which was not necessarily about old records you used to listen to, but I wanted to ask about each of you about the first time you decided to create music, to actually mm. conjure something up mm-hmm. and perform it, even for yourself. Mm-hmm. Jenny's story is probably more interesting. Is it? 
Yeah, well, I guess speaking of old records, when I started making music at the time, I was, I just learned about all of the, um, was it Radiophonic Workshop um, stuff? So I got really into library music for whatever reason. I think if I listened to it now, I would find it so boring. But at the time, I was so interested in it because I was, it just maybe for like the soundscape quality and... For whatever reason, I had a karaoke machine, and my roommate at the time had a microphone that he lent me. This would be college? This is, well, I guess it it would maybe be, if I went to college, it would be that time in my life, but I never went to college, (laughs) so I was maybe 25, Um, and yeah, I did have a synthesizer. I had just like some stupid... Rolling, I think it was like an XB80 or something like that, where it had like 200 sound banks and you can make like any sound, you know, it's like just drums, bass, like guitar, whatever. And um, yeah, so I don't know, this is all to say that I was listening to a lot of library music and I was sampling that. Like I was recording it with a microphone, I like played off of a record and then recorded onto this karaoke machine, and then I would like dub some, like maybe poems or something over it, and and then I would just make these tapes and I would give them to people, and they were like, "What are you? What is this?" And I'm like, "I don't know. I just like made you like a tape, like how someone would make <laughs> someone a mixtape." And they were like, "Oh, well, did you ever think about making music?" And I was like, "Not really," but then I just tried. Too. I was like, well, how would I make music? Like, how does a person make music? And then just, like, from having this synthesizer with all these different sounds, I just, like, I was like, this is how you quantize a beat. This is how you, I guess, make a bass line. Like, I just intuitively found a way of making music without, like, this initial desire to even ever want to do it, besides being a fan of music. Yeah. So that's that's pretty much the story of my origin story. Yeah, that's pretty cool. What about you? I um, I just always wanted to. Like when I was like two years old, I used to tell my parents, like, I'm going to be in a band. And they'd be like, okay, how do you know what a band is? And I'd be like, I don't know, but that's what I'm going to do. Um, yeah, and I played my first show in eighth grade. We did a Death Angel cover, an <laughs> MOD cover, and two originals, I think. But I don't remember how they went. Where Where was that played? I was like, um, there was two. They were both at school, like, like a Catholic school. Where was that? Uh, Buffalo Grove? Yeah. Um, Illinois. Yeah, there was a... Um, like the, I keep forgetting, I have to explain things to the, people who... Right. The, like, dean of the school, the vice principal, who was, like, the real, like, bulldog, you know, this is, like, a 80s Catholic school, and he's just, like, just, like, this tiny, angry, horrible guy who would just, like, scream at the top of his lungs at children, just, like, steam coming out of his ears, and just, like, this, you know, gruff bark, and his name was Mr. Schmidt. And so our band was called the Schmidt Heads. <laughs> and uh, then we played the variety show, and they let us play a couple songs at the dance. And um, 
I don't remember which was first, but they were both probably in the same like two weeks. I can't believe they let us do it a second time because they were both just like ridiculous meltdowns. And then actually the second band I was in, which started the summer before high school and became Captain Jazz, uh, the drummer that is now like a bodybuilder celebrity. It's pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Yeah. Well, what was the band called before Captain Jazz? Uh, Toe Jam. Toe Jam, that's right. T-O-E-J-A-M <laughs> in an iron cross with the O and the A overlapping <laughs> to make an anarchy symbol. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. gross. And then we kicked out the bodybuilder guy and uh, changed name. just spent some time in the desert Mm -hmm. can can you tell me about that yeah Uh, I acted in a movie super weird I'd never done that Um, what's the movie who's the director what was your role um, it's called firstness we aren't really supposed to talk about it Mm -hmm. because they have like a whole way that they're uh, doing their slow reveal before it's out next year. Um, But it was really intense. There's three of us that were like the main characters. Um, It was three weeks of shooting, so we were away for a month. Very remote place, like a 30-person crew out in the middle of nowhere, like 40 minutes from the closest grocery store, like really super remote. And Jenny... We had, we had a little house, which was kind of like beautiful little guest house behind this artist couple's little compound, and Jenny was just there working, if you want to. I'm sorry, did you say what town that was? Uh, Carrizozo. Oh, Carrizozo. Mm-hmm. After you. Oh, yeah, well, we were staying in the guest house of our friends, Paula and Mike, and it's crazy because Paula used to live in Chicago, and she knows Tim from going to Jinx. Oh. Yeah, true. <laughs> so. I hadn't seen her in like... Paula who? Uh, Paula Wilson. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. She and used to date this guy, Jonathan, who sat at the counter all the time in 97. Very nice guy. Which which guy was Jonathan? I mean, did he have a nickname? Like a cafe? Oh, no, name? he wasn't like, like you know, laptop the dark guy, lord. The dark or, yeah. lord, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, he was very nice. He was pretty quiet. So, yeah, it was uh, just this guest house where I had a whole room full of cacti to myself and I couldn't really leave because they were using the car for the movie and also walking around was like kind of a roll of the dice as far as safety because there is these um, loose dogs kind of everywhere and they were like a bit aggressive and they would just follow you around and if you didn't give them dog treats they like might bite at you and stuff so 
so I didn't like walk around by myself very often. There was like a couple days where I did it. Uh, but that's all to say that I was holed up and ended up just starting our third record. So it's, yeah, I like started 22 songs. Nothing like being locked in a house in the desert by yourself yeah, to really prompt creativity. We were yeah. there for. Sorry, did you say twenty-two songs? Yeah, twenty-two songs, and then I that started you created in those three weeks. Just in a week, probably I actually think. like. She spent the first week kind of cracking her knuckles. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of just like was like reading books and. <laughs> like watching movies i watched yeah. oh i actually watched ordinary people twice i was like i cried like i'd never seen it before <laughs> and i was home by myself in the middle of the night and like i just like walked outside like the stars beaming down i was just like bawling i thought it was like the saddest movie <laughs> i've ever seen and then i watched it again the next day and then and then i think i like, wrote all of these songs like i was like all right now i'm ready <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was incredible the clip of her creativity because it was really like a weekend she hadn't like recorded anything, and then like a week before we left, she just, was just sort of like, you know, had like cooling down like okay, all right, done with that. But in the middle, twenty two songs came out of like, and they like sound great. Yeah, I can't cool. wait to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. I mean, for me, it was helpful to be alone because I, we work at different paces and I like to work very fast. And so it was like, yeah, it was a week to do all those songs that I think in like two days. Because originally I wanted to um, work on a book or like at least create a book outline. And then I got stuck. But then the last two days... I was able to do it because throughout that time I was creating a wall collage of trying to understand what it, the story could possibly be. And then, yeah, I finally, it like came to me and then I was able to create this outline. So I got a lot done while we were there. Yeah, the desert, very productive space. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned to me that you found that you liked acting. Can you tell me more about that? I, I don't think I would be interested in doing it again if I didn't really love like the story and the director's vision and sensibility. I'm sorry, who's the director? Uh, Brielle Brilliant. Um, yeah, because it's like really long days. You know, it was like six days a week, 12 hours a day. It's like 30 of us, just sort of like if the location is just like this house we're shooting in. I mean, we moved around quite a bit, but some days it would be like 12 hours in this house and you just feel like you're in the way of the crew the whole time. And they'll be like, okay, so remember, you're going to say this sentence. Remember that uh, you've just cheated on your wife. You've just discovered that your kid, whatever, and like all these things. Hold these weird contradictory things in your head show them on your face and express them in your voice when you say hi how are you <laughs> and then they're like okay now just hold that for 45 minutes while we change the lighting and it's and it's just got like really exhausting you know um it was well, at like least an, you had an, a, a, an answer to the question of what's my motivation yeah it was an it was an amazing experience and i would do it again in a second with the same crew it was like a real intense summer camp thing because we were just 
30 of us totally middle of nowhere. But um, yeah, I'd be pretty reluctant to do it in general. Has that made you view any films that you loved <laughs> or hated uh, differently? We've been watching <laughs> like uh, this long Netflix show and there are moments where now as we watch it, Wait, everyone's, you guys are looking embarrassed. What is the, the long Netflix show? Oh, it's a good show. Um, oh, no, the show is great. It's called The Rayburns. It's, it's called Bloodline. Bloodline. But what we're laughing about is how our like perception of movies is forever changed because of this experience. Because once you act or you're on a film set... You just realize how fake yeah. everything is, like how constructed and so edited now, everything. Yeah, so as we watch the Rayburns now, we like sit there and we're like totally absorbed. It's like really intense noir story. But then just one of us, so especially during silences, we know it happens. It's not during dialogue, but when someone's just like by themselves or silent, we'll be watching it while we'll just go acting. <laughs> like, right, like like someone's like sitting looking at their phone and then they have to look out the window and we're just yeah. like ah oh, acting, acting. Yeah. <laughs> so we definitely are recognizing it you know. yeah <laughs> yeah cause it feels so, it was definitely like felt sort of silly like there was moments moments that seemed like difficult and we knew were difficult and they took preparation and they took like concentration but then there were some moments where it would just be like, okay, look out the window. And then they're like, that was amazing. How'd you do it? And I was like, I don't know. I'm looking <laughs> out the window. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the opposite of that is basically the David Mamet approach. It's like, fuck you, your motivation, just say the words. Say the words yeah, that yeah. I wrote mm-hmm. yeah. as boringly as possible. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I did a lot of that. I, when I had, because the hardest part was memorizing lines. So I like made a playlist of myself reading my lines to myself with like little musical cue of my line versus the other one. And I would count on my fingers just like, okay, I have eight lines here. So I would just attribute each line to a fingertip. Hmm. And mostly, you know, when you watch the movie, if your mind starts to drift, you can just imagine me moving my attention from one fingertip to the next as I say each line because I'm just basically remembering what to say. Very nice. It's a good system. Pretty good. Thanks. Hope it helps you someday if you ever (laughs) find yourself acting for some reason. Right. Never know. I had a gear question that I wanted to ask you. Um, you mentioned kind of bringing like a, like a table with stuff that needs to be hooked up, seemingly like a lot of gadgets and so on. Uh, so I was curious, like when you write and record, how much is sort of like on a laptop or done differently? And then when you're playing live, how much you're playing, how much is sequenced or just how you're doing that? I feel like you have a better sense of our new la- uh, setup. Yeah, I would say a lot of it is on a laptop or a sampler and we are as it's a backing track and we are playing to it 
um, unless and some of the song, but some of the songs are also made are a different version of what it would be on the record, and so it's like an interpretation, and we find a way to do it and play it live with like a drum machine and a drum pad and sense. So it's like we have enough instruments to play a full song without like having a backing track, but um, it just seems to sound better with the backing track. Yeah, I would, I would <laughs> say the like commonality between the records and live is, the way we make the, the records is we just are trading tracks back and forth constantly. Mm-hmm. And so they get really layered with sort of like, uh, some of it is in every song at some point goes through Reason, Ableton, and Pro Tools. Um, but then every song also has live playing on it. So we're sort of like trading them back and forth. And then at some point, we don't recognize who's done what very much. Um, but then there's also like one song on the record, I did all the music, and she sang another song where she did all the music and I sang. Um, and then live every single we move around the table a lot it's not like we're standing behind the table we're sort of switching positions constantly so actually in like I think like last night we did like 12 songs and in those 12 songs it's 12 different variations like there's no two songs that are played the same Um, and that's a kind of intentional Thing of, we think of it in terms of like collage a lot. So there's like a limited number of elements, but 12 songs is 12 different combinations. That makes sense? That's the right mm-hmm. way to explain it? Yeah, I think so. Um, like we're able to collage it as we like each night because um, there are so many small and moving parts and like. I said we have instruments so it's like if we feel like playing an instrument suddenly over mm-hmm. a certain part we can do that um and that has happened a little bit we haven't even like mentioned it where it's like oh right you're adding that yeah you it becomes and, yeah. like improvised it has yeah. more of an improvised set as opposed to playing a song in a certain way mm-hmm. even though we do that as well sometimes mm-hmm. yeah. cool that's also a good system you got a lot of good ideas going on yeah thank you I think in terms of like aiming for like a totality of expression, we're very aware of like, oh, we did this this way. What's the opposite? Oh, the opposite is kind of the same. What's 90 degree pivot? You know, like we're just kind of constantly finding the counterpoint to how we do it. Yeah. In live, we talk about like creating tableaus. Like when you're watching a show, how many different tableaus can we create for the audience to see? So that's why we have so many different stations and places that we can go to so that it's not boring for us, but also, especially, hopefully, not boring for people watching. Right. Yeah, we're only two people, but we're in different positions in relation to each other every single song. That's cool. Yeah, I've not seen anything like that. So yeah, and I don't even know if the, like I don't know if you even noticed that happened. Like I don't know, having seen the show last night, mm-hmm. I don't know if you noticed. Like I don't think it's a thing that we expect the audience to necessarily register. Like, oh wow, each song they're standing in different positions. I mean, I, yeah, as yeah, much as broken it down to that, but certainly like one moment Jenny's over on stage left dancing, and the next moment she's playing guitar, and so yeah. yeah. I, you know, certainly, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of variation. <laughs> it's a 
they're fucking around with that iPad. Yeah, <laughs> right. Trying to do our sing along karaoke, which yeah. no one has seemed to, get, to catch on. Yeah, it's to hard yet. to get people to sing along if they haven't heard the songs yet. <laughs> we need to help them. Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say these guys have to get on the road. Yeah, I'm sure to Philly. Yeah. Any any closing any mysteries we've left unsolved? Since you're doing all of your own marketing and stuff like that, what's the sales pitch? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's time to revive the middle class of, <laughs> of not only America, but the music industry, yeah. which is actually very true, though, because like the reason why we're booking our own tour is because like flower went out of business and had flower not gone on business we would have had a booker and mm. i think a lot of this is probably true for a lot of bands where you know you have a lot of independent businesses gone or bought out by bigger companies and then it just yeah, prevents a... so many bands from existing or at least from touring or yeah. at least from touring um yeah, there's a corporate consolidation happening on the booking side like related to like Live Nation and it's uh hmm. we are feeling we are feeling the squeeze. We are like the small we are the small piss ants who are suffering the you know, we're the fallout of this thing. Yeah. It's cool though. Right. Just if you wanna figure fight it out. for <laughs> yeah, that's for our... your children, create a future for your children, get out to shows, support local music, support mm-hmm. us online buyer merch buyer stuff you know oh that's a good pitch the future of civilization depends yeah. on and depends on you <laughs> and what is the and website goofduck.com g o o f d u c k.com could you not have goodfuck as a domain name is is i can prevent uh, things like that i think we <clears throat> were like well, this is just going to lead to so much porn that yep. <laughs> <laughs> like people are just gonna accidentally yeah. end up seeing so much porn if they're not already. Yeah. Um, so I think that was the the main thing. And for like, uh, my parents don't know that our man is called. Good. I just can't bring myself to do it. And one day <laughs> they'll find out. But if we can like say goof duck, then. You know, it's like it's like this cute, sweet thing, yeah. or that like, yeah, parents can tell their children. You know, <laughs> my mom actually had a really funny line when she found out our band is called Good Fuck. She's like, I'm, you know, I'm pretty disappointed in you guys. You know, I really would have expected more. I thought you would have named your band Great Fuck. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, pretty good for a 76 yeah. year old lady. Really yeah, that is. <laughs> Tim, Jenny, thank you for joining yeah, us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you guys both. Yeah, nice to see you. Thank all Over three there. of you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <coughs> nice to see you.